Now today, friends, we come to the 15th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you have your notes and outlines, you'll want to follow along, and you'll notice that the 15th chapter, our subject here is God's Poverty Program. hear a great deal about man's poverty program today, and it's not working. God had one that worked. And then there is a section here about a slave, a permanent slave. And then we have the perfect sacrifice is Christ. This is another very unusual chapter, you see. Now, we come here in the first verse. At the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. He's talking here about the sabbatic year, by the way. Every seven years... There was a release made, that is, as he indicates it here. Verse 2, And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Now, every seventh year the land was to lie fallow. But there were certain conditions that meant that you couldn't, from a brother or a neighbor, you could not take a mortgage that went beyond seven years. That is, if you foreclosed at the end of seven years or when the sabbatic year came around, that land or the money you had loaned all be canceled out. So they had to take that into consideration. Why? Because it equalized the wealth of that day. It gave every man an opportunity. Now, I want to strictly understand, I'm no socialist, and I think it's a devilish doctrine for the very simple reason. It doesn't take into effect that man is a sinful creature. And if he can get it for nothing, he's not going to work for it, that's for sure. But also, there's the other extreme of extreme wealth today. And let's also say that at the lower scale, there are those that won't work of the poor if it's given to them. Well, what about the rich that don't work either? There are a great many of those today. Now, there needs to be some sort of a system that would equalize this so that there would be an opportunity given to a poor man who really wanted to work and get something for himself. And that's not possible today. We like to read the story of Henry Ford, and we like to read the story of these men that are founders of great corporations, the Rockefellers and the Hines and many other of them and the Mellons. But the poor boy doesn't have quite that kind of an opportunity today. You're not apt to start another big automobile works today. It would certainly be an unusual fellow that did that. Well, the thought here is this was God's method of giving every man an opportunity who would work. And that's important, you see. Now he says in verse 3, Of a foreigner, thou mayest exact it again, but that which is thine with thy brother, 
thine hands shall release, so that it would be impossible for a man from a relative or a neighbor or a friend, it would be impossible for him to loan money, and if the man couldn't pay it in seven years, it was canceled out. So that always had to be taken in consideration. And it gave the poor man, you see, an opportunity that he would not otherwise have. Now, had this been observed, this is what would have happened. Verse 4 says, "...save when, or save only, there shall be no poor among you." The time is coming when there shall be no poor among you. But it was God's intention right there and then, had they obeyed him, that there would not be any poor. Save only, there shall be no poor among you. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance to possess it. Now, here is something that needs to be, I think, observed, certainly today. And that is that the poor throughout the world are getting attention as they have never had before, and probably rightly so. I don't care what nation you go into, you're always impressed, whether it's a European nation or an Asiatic nation or a South American nation or right here in this country, that is the United States, you're impressed that on one side of town there is extreme poverty and there is on the other side of town excess wealth. Now, that is the result of the sin of man. Now, you can blame individuals, of course, but the thing is that basically it's due to the sin of man. Now, had man obeyed God in this respect, there would have been no poor among them. There would have been a balance of wealth. And that was the thing. Now, today, until the heart of man is changed, socialism, as it's practiced in these communist countries, becomes the most frightful dictatorship that's imaginable. Capitalism is so much better than socialism is in the nations of the world. But fundamentally, whether it's capitalism or socialism, the problem today is basically the human heart. And God was calling his people to obedience, and had they obeyed him, it would have eliminated poverty. Now, you can't eliminate poverty by putting certain things, physical things, in the hands of certain people. Because if you did it, why, we are seeing that the worst corruption we've ever had is in this nation today relative to the poverty program. It's become a disgrace. And what would happen if the wealth is all divided up again? Well, if it was, friends, in ten years, the other fellow would have it and I'd be back poor again. That's the way they would be because that, I suppose, is due to what? It's due to the hearts of men today. And God makes it very clear that if his system had been put in and the nation had obeyed him, it would have solved this problem. You see, God's dealing right down with the nitty-gritty, friends, and man's poverty program is far from God's. And as a result, it's filled with corruption. Why? Because you've got that kind of man. 
that you're dealing with. It's not the system that is wrong today. It's man that's wrong today. And until you change man, why, most any system will not work. That's one thing to run this system down and promote another. But any system will not work with the wrong people running it. Well, now let me move on here. Verse 6, For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. Now, this is a remarkable statement concerning the nation Israel. And it is true that they've become the bankers of the world. The house of Rothschild has financed quite a few nations, by the way. They have a tremendous ability to loan money, actually, to the nations of the world. Thou shalt lend unto many nations. And this has certainly been fulfilled. Thou shalt not borrow. And thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. That's not true, of course. And when I say not true, I mean that has not been fulfilled yet. That is yet to be fulfilled. Why? Because they have never obeyed God up to the present. If there be among you a poor man, this is verse 7 now, of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Now, friends, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture. The nation never fully obeyed it when they were a nation. And they do not obey it fully today. But have you ever observed something that the little nation Israel today probably receives from individuals throughout the world, and especially of this nation, they receive more gifts than any other people have ever received? Let me put it like this. Who gives today more? Don't call it charity, but who gives to others today more than any other people? Oh, you say it'd be a Christians, certain denominations, certain churches. No, no, friends, that just doesn't happen to be true. It happens to be this nation. These people today are giving millions to the little nation of Israel. Why? Well, God taught them at the very beginning there to take care of their brother. If Christians only could learn this because actually this was given to believers also. Certain great fundamental principles are always carried over. That which is true, God carries over from one dispensation to another. And today, believers are not even in the same league. They are in the minor league, while these people, even to this day, are in the major league. And I don't think they come up near to what God had intended them to at the beginning. Now, verse 9, "...beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and givest him naught. And he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee." You see here, if the seventh year was coming up, 
he was going to be free anyway. Well, then why step in and help him now to pay off a mortgage and get his property? Well, you know, rationalize and say one or two years won't hurt. God says you go in and help him right at that very moment. It says, verse 10, Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works and in all that thou puttest thine hand to. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Now, God says you shouldn't have poor among you. If you obey me, you won't. But God says, I know you, and you'll always have the poor in the land. And the Lord Jesus, you remember, said to his apostles, you will have the poor with you always. Why? Because you've got an evil heart, a man. It's in the heart of the poor. Many are lazy, very candidly. Many are shiftless. Many have no initiative. But also, on the other hand, those that have and those that could help are not going to do it normally. It's not natural for man to do that. It has to be supernatural for him to do that. And therefore, he says, the poor will not cease out of the land. Therefore, I command thee, saying, thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. Then we have here the law of this perpetual servant that we mentioned, and we've had it before, in fact, back in the book of Exodus. Verse 16, it shall be, if he say unto thee, that is, the man that has been a slave now, has sold himself to his brother, I will not go away from thee, because he loved thee, and thine house, because he is well with thee. Then thou shalt take an awl, thrust it through his ear under the door, he shall be thy servant forever, and also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. This would be true if a man had come in and married, you see, a girl that was a slave, and he had sold himself, but he could go out free. But he said, no, I don't want to. I want my wife. I want to live with her. I love her. And he stays with her. Now, that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in the second chapter of Philippians, he took upon himself the form of a servant, came down to this earth, made in the likeness of sinful man. But he was wholly harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Now, he could have gone out free. He owed no debt of sin. He was no sinner. He didn't have to pay a penalty. He could have gone out. But he said, I love the church. And he loved the church, so he gave himself for it. And then, you remember the servant is backed up against the doorpost and an all punched through his ear. Now, in the psalmist, turns that around. A body hast thou given me. And he was crucified, friends, for you and me. This is another one of those remarkable pictures that we have back in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have here that which concerns in chapter 16 that we're coming to, by the way, that there were three main feasts, and all the males were required to go. Those three feasts were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And again, I've been over this with you, I think, twice before. And I recognize there may be some that are just joining us and say, well, I haven't been over with you. 
Well, if you stay with us five years, we'll be back here and be going over it again when we get to it back in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. Now, he says here, observe the month of Abed. Keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. And then we move on down, and he gives here the instructions for the Passover. And he says, verse 5, Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, but at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name in. There thou shalt sacrifice the Passover at even, at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. And thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose, and thou shalt turn in the morning and go under thy tents. Six days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work therein. Now, that was the Passover, and it was always to be observed in one place that was in Jerusalem. And all the males went up to Jerusalem at that time. Verse 9, Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee, begin to number the seven weeks from such time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn. Now, what we have here, of course, is Pentecost, because it was 50 days. They numbered seven weeks, which would be 49, and then the next day would be Pentecost. Then we come to verse 13. We're told here, Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days after that thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine. Now, this was the feast that they were to come to Jerusalem. That is, the males were to come to Jerusalem three times a year. And that, by the way, is stated here. This, as I've said, has been given to us before, and here it is given to us again in this particular chapter. You have three feasts at Jerusalem, that is, that were to take place at the place God chose. And these three feasts, as we've indicated, Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And all males are to go. Verse 16, it says, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he's able, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. Now, they're to come with joy before the Lord. Those are the three things for the three feasts. There were to be three feasts they were to celebrate in Jerusalem. All males were to go up at that time, and they were to go with rejoicing. Then this chapter closes with the judges. It says, "...judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates." You see, the courthouse in that day was not a block in the center of town in a courthouse square. Instead of being in the center of town, it was out at the edge of town where the gate was that was in the wall around the city. And the reason for that is that's the place where all the citizens sooner or later went in. It was the gathering place. 
And just as the square today in our towns is the gathering place, at least it once was. Now we are told here in verse 21, "...thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. Neither shalt thou set thee up any image which the Lord thy God hated." The groves were connected with idolatry and with sinful worship in that day. And for that reason, why they were not to make groves. It was in these groves that the altars and images and idols were made to heathen and pagan gods. This is very close, as you can see, to the worship of the Druids that was in Europe and also in England, connected with tree worship, you see. Paganism goes in for that type of thing, and God's warning his people against that. Now, friends, we're coming to a most unusual section in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapters 17 and 18, we have here a section that deals with regulations that would control a king, a priest, and a prophet. And this has to do with the office of all three, the office of king, the office of a priest, and the office of a prophet. These were the three main offices in the nation Israel in the theocracy that God had set up for these people. Now, will you notice, as we begin verse 1 in chapter 17, "...thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God." Now, friends, this almost touches a great many folk today who give God their second-hand clothes. We send it to the mission or to the missionaries. Or we give God that which is left over. We don't give him the best. Now, God says that the firstborn of every creature belonged to him, and everything presented to him, every offering, was without spot or blemish. You will find that in Malachi, one of the charges God made against his people that brought down judgment, and in fact, it was number one in the list of charges, was that they were offering to God a sick cow, a sick animal. For instance, they have a very fine young bullock, and the man has decided to keep that bullock. But one morning he gets up, goes out to his barn lot, and there's this animal sick. So he says to his boys, hustle up, boys, we'll put it in the truck, rush it off over to the temple, and we'll offer this prize bullock to the Lord. And the neighbors would say, my, look at Mr. So-and-so. Isn't he generous? He's giving God that prized bullock. God says, I don't want it. God says, I don't accept it. And God says that that is absolutely meaningless. You know, a great many of us believers, the way we do business with God, we'd be arrested and put in a penitentiary if we did business in the business world with other individuals like that today. That is a place where many of us could check up ourselves. How honest are we with God in financial matters? Now, don't misunderstand 
God says he's not poor. He's not asking for anything. He says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I don't want your old sick cow. And he says that the gold and silver is mine. You couldn't give God anything, friends. But you know, he permits us to do this. Why? For the blessing to our own soul. And it doesn't bless us when we are beggarly and stingy with God. This is very important, you see. Now, verse 2. He's talking here now about idolatry among the people. These are laws in this chapter that pertain to different areas of their common culture of that day. Notice this. If there be among you within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, man or woman that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant, and hath gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain, that which abomination is wrought in Israel. Then shalt thou bring forth that man or that woman, which hath committed that wicked thing under thy gates, even that man or that woman, and shall stone them with stones till they die. Now, this was an absolute law against idolatry. You say, what was the penalty for breaking the Ten Commandments? As we've called attention to this before, the penalty for breaking any one of the commandments was stoning to death. For some reason, God was not very enlightened with the enlightenment of this generation. We are so generous, and we are so loving, and we're so civilized today. We've gotten rid of the death penalty. But the very interesting thing is, we have the most lawless society that the world has ever seen. Sometimes makes you wonder if maybe God wasn't right after all. If you want to know the truth, I think he was right. And this was the penalty. Now, you'll notice those that worship the sun, moon, or the host of heaven. If you look into Greek mythology and the idolatry of the Orient, you will find out that many of the gods and goddesses are associated with the sun, moon, and stars. That was common among the Greeks. As you know, we identified Diana was the goddess of the moon, for instance. And we find Apollo the sun, and so on and so on. As God put it, they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Where did that begin? I personally think it began at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel actually was a rallying place for those against God. And they were against God. Now, why? Well, he'd sent a flood. And now they're going to worship the sun. Sun, according to them, never sent a flood. The very interesting thing is they didn't know that it was the sun that drew the water up that sent the rain and moved the clouds across the sky. But you see, in idolatry and the science of that day wasn't very accurate. And maybe the science of our day doesn't have the final word. A great many people today feel like man's wisdom and knowledge 
is accurate. Now, they were quite inaccurate in that day. So they turned to worship the sun and the moon and the stars. They seemed to be friendly, and they worshiped them rather than the Creator who made them. And this is God's condemnation. It's breaking the first and second commandments. Now, will you notice, verse 6, "...at the mouth of two witnesses are three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death." Now, I want you to notice this, because this is very important also. It wasn't arbitrary. In other words, a man couldn't rush in, and he had it in for his neighbor, and then say, this man, I saw him worshiping the sun god, or Ashtaroth, the Babylonian god, or Ishtar, or Aphrodite, or Venus, or any of these. That wasn't any good. There had to be two or more witnesses. It took that to condemn the man, you see. Now, today, one witness can send a man to the gas chamber or the lecture chair. I personally do not think that that should be permitted. I feel like that you need more than one witness in any case. And here, God always said there had to be two or more witnesses. You see, God's not arbitrary. He was being very fair in his dealings. Now, here they were to always refer everything to the priests. Why? Well, because this was the theocracy, and they should never have had a king. They'll ask for one later on, as you well know, and God will give it to them. You know, he granted their requests, it was said of those in the wilderness, but he sent leanness to their souls. You know, if God answered many of our prayers like we pray them, it'd be the biggest mistake in the world. And God's very gracious, and he says no to us many times. He does that to me, and I'm sure he does it to you. Now, notice verse 8. If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, in other words, if two men disagree on an important matter, how is it to be solved when the evidence seems to be equally impressive on both sides? Then shalt thou arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. Now, that was that which was to be. Thou shalt do according to the sentence which they of that place which the Lord shall choose. So that this was the way God was to control, and this is the way they were to obey. Now, the law did not cover everything. Very frankly, the only instance I know where it's recorded that this was used, and I'm sure it was used many times, is over in the little prophecy of Haggai. And there, Haggai 2.11, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning a law, And it was concerning something that was not specifically and definitely and dogmatically given in the Mosaic law. And it didn't cover everything. Therefore, in these cases, they were to appeal to the priests and the judge that was in that day. 
and they were to hand down the decision concerning the matter. This is very important, by the way, as you can see. Now we come in verse 14 to these regulations that concerned a king. And then we'll see in chapter 18 those that concerned a priest, and then those that concerned a prophet. Now, God gave, and I'll just lift out just certain things that concern the king. Verse 16, you have given here three things that the king was not to do. And you know what? Well, let's read them and we'll see. First, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Now, this man Solomon multiplied horses. I was at Megiddo, and the thing that impressed me at Megiddo is not so much the battle of Armageddon, the thing that is there, the ruins of the stables of Solomon. And those were just one stable, by the way. I think the stables of Solomon would have made any racetrack in this country today look like a tenant farmer's barn in Georgia. I'm confident that this man Solomon went all out in this direction. And this is the reason God warned them of it. Because in multiplying horses, Egypt was the place in that day that really raised horses. You remember that even today there's a breed of horse, I understand, called the Egyptian. And he's a very fine horse. Now, the second thing the king was not to do, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Well, who did that? Well, Solomon went all out in this direction also, and it was his wives that turned him away from God. You see, the Lord, here at the very beginning, puts up the road warning sign, don't go down this way, be careful. And then the third thing, here in verse 17, is mentioned, "...neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold." And actually, Solomon cornered the silver and gold market of his day. David had begun that. David was collecting it, of course, to build the temple. But this is God's warning against that, which was the undoing of Solomon and finally brought the division of the kingdom and ultimately the captivity of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. Now, in chapter 18, there is a word here first about the tribe of Levi. And we have here priests and prophets given, but the priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no partner inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he hath said unto them. Now, this is the 18th chapter, verses 1 and 2. And this law regulated the Levites. Now, here in verse 3, "...and this shall be the priest's due from the people." From them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be ox or sheep, they shall give unto the priest the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the maw. I'll not go into this, but this is what the priests received in lieu of the land that was not given them. They had no inheritance 
among the children of Israel. You see, their inheritance was of the Lord, and the Lord provided in this particular way. And I do feel that this is the method that God uses to carry on his work in the world today, that he expects God's people to support the work where there are those giving a hundred percent of their time to getting out the Word of God. I believe that that is here a great principle. I don't say that you're to bring in a shoulder from a lamb or a shoulder from a young oxen. It might mean that we'd have T-bone steaks and lamb chops, but that is, I don't think, quite the thing that he's talking about for us today. But the great principle, as you can see, is put down here. Now he gives a warning against idolatry. Verse 9, "...when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch." or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Now, this is something that is specifically warned against. These people, when they went into the land, were not to resort to these pagan heathen practices. And you'll find that this is repeated in the New Testament. There is a warning against it. And Paul says that in the last days that the man will turn to the doctrine of demons, that there will be resorting to this unseen satanic world. Now, let me venture just my own judgment, and you can take it for what it's worth. I believe that we have now come into that period. There is a great manifestation right now of Satan worship. You will find it here in Southern California. There are apparently two or three churches of Satan where they actually worship him. I was on the island of Maui in the Hawaiian Islands, saw a group of young people falling down before a picture of Krishna, which is nothing in the world, of course, but satanic worship. And today, there are those that say, well, this is just a little fad. It is not serious at all. It's just the tendency of human nature to go after fads, especially Americans. Well, friends, that may be true, and there may be an element of truth in it. But this thing happens to be real. I think there's a great deal of reality and Satan worship. The interesting place where they are worshiping is now on college campuses. And at least a great many of those that have a pretty high IQ are indulging in this. Now, you can say that they're saps and that they're stupid and all that sort of thing, but they still have a pretty high IQ. So there must be a certain amount of reality in this, and I personally think that there is. But God warns against it, says it's an abomination unto him. And I want to say this because somebody needs to say it today. There is even a danger of fooling with astrology. Remember, we saw here 
the worship of the sun, moon, and the stars. Believe me, there are a great many folk that are putting more emphasis on that than they're putting in on the Bible. And even these five and ten cent stores are just loaded with this material on astrology. You can't go into a drugstore and look at the magazine rack that there's a whole section or segment that's given over to this matter of astrology. Now, I may be stepping on somebody's toes. My friend, may I say this to you? That is an abomination unto the Lord. Now, don't find fault with me because it's no abomination to me. The Lord says it's an abomination to him to fool with that type of stuff. Why is it an abomination under the Lord? Because it takes people away from the living and true God. It plunges them into darkness and demonism, turning to an unseen world. And there is an unseen world around us. There is reality today in a world of demons, a world of fallen angels, and a spirit world. This thing is real today. And people are beginning to fool with this. They use drugs today. They use every manner of means to try to make contact with this. Well, I think they're working at it pretty hard, because I think that the unseen world, the satanic world, is glad to make contact with you. And it would pay any child of God to let this thing alone. And after all, the very fact you turn in that direction means that you have a pretty weak faith, and it means you're really not trusting Christ as your Savior. And it means, my friends, today that you're turning away from that which is spiritual, and you're turning away from the Word of God. Now, God has said something about the future also. And he happens to be very accurate. His batting average is way up yonder. He hasn't missed yet. It's been a home run every time he's come to bat so far. And I'm going to go along with him. Now he said to his people in verse 14, For these nations which thou shalt possess hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners. But as for thee... The Lord thy God hath not suffered thee so to do. In other words, these nations are being judged because of this, and they're being removed from the land because of that. He moves on now, and he's going to give the test for a real prophet. We're delighted we can come to this now. Verse 15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. Now, they were to listen to God's prophets. Why? Well, because they were telling the truth to begin with. That was primary. That's basic. But the second reason is it would prepare them to listen to the final messenger, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are those that raise the question, why doesn't God reveal himself today? My friend, in the person of Jesus Christ, God put the period at the end of the sentence. God put the quotation marks at the end of the paragraph. God wrote finis at the end of the book. This is the end. He hasn't any more to say to this world than he said in Jesus Christ. And we are to hear him 
He says, unto him ye shall hearken, you shall listen to him. And that voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. You listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. He has the final word. And I would say to believers today that the Lord Jesus Christ is God's ultimate, God's full, and God's final revelation to man. And that is what Moses, way back at the beginning, is saying here. Now will you notice, and I drop down to verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And you'll recall that the Lord Jesus again and again says, I speak what the Father wants me to speak. I've come to do his will, and I'm doing his will. And when he had finished his earthly ministry, and in that great high priestly prayer, in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, he turned in his final report, and he says, I finished the work thou gavest me to do. I said everything that you wanted me to say. I've said it all. I haven't any more to say. And friends, if God spoke out of heaven at this very moment, he wouldn't say anything that he hadn't already said. He'd just repeat himself because he said all he intends to say to you and me in the person of Christ. That's the reason today that it would be well to let astrology alone. And the idea that you can find out something about your future. May I say to you that it's the tendency of human nature to want to explore the unknown. There is an insatiable desire to probe the mysterious. Man has pioneered in every crevice of the earth today. It was said of Abraham. He went out not knowing whether he went, but God knew where he was going and God was leading him. I guess, though, that the spirit of Columbus is in all of us. Right now, man's engaged in exploring space. He's interested in getting out into new areas. Now, there's this other area in which man has long investigated, and that's time, and that is the mysterious future. What's beyond tomorrow? What does the future hold? All would like to know it, would they not? Back in school, you can remember that there was a class prophet. I'm very much amused to read about a Texan. He spent time in the penitentiary because of the fact he defrauded apparently a lot of farmers out in West Texas and also a few banks, I guess, accumulated several million for himself. The class prophet, I understand in his class, said that he would become an undertaker. Believe me, prophets certainly miss it. Today we see multitudes of people that are anxious about the future. What about tomorrow? Well, the future's a closed door. Memory can take you back into the past, but there's no vehicle to take you into the future. We see written on the door of the future, keep out. Remember that today was tomorrow, only yesterday. And man's limit today is to time and also space. 
and to satisfy this insatiable longing, there arose among the heathen, therefore, these spiritualists, these necromancers, this divination, and God warned his people against it. It was connected with idolatry, it's satanic in origin, and could they tell the future? And this is very interesting. There was a certain degree of accuracy. Now, the oracle at Delphi that the Greeks had, believe me, they were very much interested in that. And apparently, they got a certain amount of accurate information there, but it was satanic. They said Hitler resorted to some sort of a fortune teller. And in Washington today, I'm told that fortune tellers do a land office business. And all you have to do is look in the classified ads, and you find out that there's somebody that's making a very fine living by just speaking of the future. Now, the future is in the area in which man has never been given dominion. Man has no authority for the future. God alone can predict the future, and it belongs to him. And that's the unique character of the Word of God. It moves beyond the present. And the greatest proof to me that the Bible is the Word of God is prophecy. One-fourth, when it was written, was prophecy, and a large portion of that's already been fulfilled. God has prophecies concerning cities and nations and four great world empires. Now, under these circumstances, there would arise, of course, false prophets, as there are today. And they wanted the status and the position that belonged to the true prophet of God. Now, how was Israel to protect themselves from false prophets? How can you tell a counterfeit $20 bill? How would you be able to know it? Well, there were false prophets among the people. That's quite evident. And, unfortunately, they would not apply God's rules and regulations whereby they could have told that there was. Over in Jeremiah, he speaks of these false prophets. Jeremiah 14, 14. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake I unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their heart. Now, it's easy enough for a prophet to speak of the coming kingdom and centuries in the future. It'd be very easy for him to do that. Jeremiah spoke of the future. Now, how do you know that Jeremiah is accurate? How do you know that he was a true prophet in that day? We can know it today because a great deal of his has been fulfilled. Well, God put down a rule for his people. And here in this 18th chapter, now notice, God says in verse 18, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. Like unto thee, I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now, verse 20, but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, 
How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. Now, let's look at this for just a moment here. Isaiah is a prophet of God, a true prophet of God. How do you know? Well, he prophesied of a virgin birth, that a virgin would conceive, bring forth a son. He marked out very clearly the coming of the Lord Jesus, his birth, his life, and his death, by the way. Now, suppose somebody stepped up to this man Isaiah and said, Look here, Isaiah, you say that a virgin is going to conceive. How long do you think it might be? I think Isaiah would have said, I'm not quite sure, but it could be 700 years. Well, the crowd might laugh and say, well, none of us are going to be around here. How are you going to know that? Well, the test had to be, and that's the reason that you'll find that all the prophets spoke into a local situation. That was the test. They had to speak into a local situation that was coming to pass right away. And it had to be fulfilled accurately. And they couldn't miss it. Now, that would disqualify everyone today that's on the scene that claims to be a prophet and can tell the future. Now, I grant you that some of them have hit the nail right on the head. But more often, they've missed the nail altogether. But you don't hear much of that. You only hear the ones that they predicted. But you see, any prophet in Israel that predicted something and it didn't come to pass, he's out of business immediately. He's declared a false prophet and ruled out. Now, what was the test? Well, he'd have to speak into a local situation. Now, let's look at Isaiah again. Isaiah prophesied the virgin birth. We look back 1,900 years to the fulfillment of that, and we know he's accurate. But how did people in his day know? Well, they can know it for this reason. This man, Isaiah, he went to Hezekiah, and he said, Now, outside the walls of Jerusalem, there is this great army of the Assyrians. Don't be afraid of them. Hezekiah said, Well, how do I know? These Assyrians, they have mowed all of the nations of the world down. And this great army out here will eventually breach the walls of this city and they'll take us and we'll be carried captive. Isaiah said, you won't be. God says, you won't be. Now, he not only said that, he said that not one arrow would be shot in that city. Now, that city is surrounded by the Assyrian army. And there are 300,000 trigger-happy soldiers in that army. All of them got a bow and an arrow. And you would think that one of these fellows would say, I think I'll just put an arrow in the bow, I'll pull it back, shoot it over the wall, see if anybody yells ouch, see if I can hit anybody. Why, you would think that that would happen. My friend, if one arrow had been shot in that city... Isaiah loses his job as a true prophet of God. He's out of business. Just on one arrow being shot in the city, you want to know something? There wasn't any arrows shot in the city, not even one. 
That is one of the many tests. And you'll find that Isaiah again and again spoke into a local situation. And you'll find that all the prophets did that. My friend, this was the way they could tell a true prophet of God. And I could give instances today of false prophets in our day. In fact, right here in Pasadena, where I live, during the war, there arose a man that predicted the world had come to an end on a certain day. Well, he's out of business today. And did you know the church is never told to beware of false prophets? Why? They're just not doing business today, friends. You don't need to listen to them. Listen to Christ. He's the one. Listen to the Word of God. Don't pay any attention to them. What are we to beware of? We're to beware, Peter says, as there were false prophets among the people, there'll be false teachers among you. And you need to listen very carefully today because there's many a sweet, soothing voice that sounds very pious, but it's not teaching the Word of God. Oh, how important it is today to beware of false teachers. This is an important section. I spent a little time with it. Now you find out in chapter 19, as we come to that, the cities of refuge are mentioned. I've been into this before, but may I just say briefly, certain cities were called cities of refuge, that when a man had slain someone accidentally, not in a premeditated manner. For instance, they were out working together. An axe head came off and hit the man. Well, his brother may think he did it purposely, and he's not permitted to bring him into court or anything. The man goes to a city of refuge, and he's protected there until a fair trial can be held. That was something that was very important. Now we are told here something about the land that they're going into. In verse 8, If the Lord thy God enlarge thy coast, as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, and give thee all the land which he promised to give unto thy fathers, if thou shalt keep all his commandments to do them, which I command thee this day, to love the Lord thy God, and to walk ever in his ways." The test of love is obedience. Then shalt thou add three cities more for thee beside these three. But they never needed those for the very simple reason that out of 300,000 square miles God gave to them, they've only occupied 30,000 square miles. Now you have here the fact that landmarks were sacred. Verse 14, thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. This is a protection of human property, the protection of the rights to property. That's important today, by the way. Now you have, beginning at verse 15, something that reveals to us how awesome the law really was, and what it is. Anyone that says today they want to live under law, they ought to really find out what it is. He talks here about, beginning with verse 15, "...one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sinneth. The mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established." And so on. Now, there's rules for that. 
But notice what happens here. If a man is found guilty of breaking the law, what shall they do? Show mercy? Verse 21, "...and thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot." That's law, friends. I thank God today that the Lord is not judging me on the basis of law, that he saves me today by grace, because if he was saving me by law today, I'd be lost, because I could never, never measure up. Law is law, friends. We have such a careless attitude toward law. Believe me, God enforces his law, and it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And I thank God that he saves by grace today and that the throne of God has become a mercy seat because Christ died and the blood has been sprinkled there, and that's the blood of the covenant. He paid the penalty, and there is pardon today for sinners, not because they keep a law because they've broken it. They're guilty before God, and God saves by his marvelous, infinite, wonderful grace. Oh, how important this is. How wonderfully important this is, friends, in these days in which we're living. Now, friends, we come today to the 20th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And we're entering here a very interesting section that we'll be in for some time. Here we're going to look at first today the laws regulating warfare, actually, it's concerning the draft. Nothing's quite as pertinent as that. And then there's laws regulating murder, marriage, and delinquent sons, and brother relationships, dress, the building code, the planting of seed, and marriage, and divorce, and the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, friends, can you have anything more pertinent than that for us today? Now, don't tell me that the book of Deuteronomy is a book that's way out, that it doesn't touch life where we live it today. This is the law given to Israel. But there are certain basic principles here that if they're incorporated in our living, in our life, it would contribute to the happiness and the weal and the welfare of mankind. This is something very important. I'm convinced that the men who originally drew up our Constitution were men who were Bible-oriented. problem today is that we have a society made up of people that are entirely ignorant of the Bible, and our lawmakers today actually appear to be stupid in many cases today. And as far as the Word of God is concerned, they are. And the blunders that are taking place today in politics, my friend, are enough to cause us to weep and howl because these men, far from God and not knowing him at all. Now, we're going to be in the next few days in this area dealing with these things that they're trying to deal with in Washington their own way, and they've been wrestling with them for years. Now, let me get to our study. Chapter 20, verse 1. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, 
and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is something that's very important for the children of Israel. I'm not sure that it's important for us today. Now, they say today, make love, not war. That sounds good as a little cliche and a little motto, but it's like a great many. It's absolutely meaningless. There are times to make war because we're living in a sinful world. The heart of man is desperately wicked. And there are times when you need to protect yourself. And there are wars in which God is on one side. Napoleon put it like this. He said, God is on the side that has the largest battalions. But Napoleon found out that was a lie because he won quite a few battles in which actually he didn't have the biggest battalions at all. Very frankly, the important thing for any nation, certainly so-called civilized and Christian nation, is this war that God is in. And if he's not in it, we ought not to be in it either. I'm afraid that we have folk that do not think in terms like that. Now, verse 2, it shall be when ye are come nigh unto the battle that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not. Do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now, that is something that is very important in warfare. Make sure that God is on your side, or better still, that you're on God's side. Now, God puts down four conditions are four excuses that a man would have for not going to battle. Then we're going to see what it was that he had in mind. Verse 5, And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house, hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Now, a man has a new home, and... He's just built it, and he hasn't had an opportunity to live in it. Well, that man's not to go into battle. Why? Because his heart naturally would be in that new home. He had set his heart upon it and his affection upon it. He wanted to live in it. Therefore, he's to have that opportunity. The second reason for a man not going to battle, and what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. Now, here's a man that has planted a vineyard. These people were an agrarian people. They were farmers. Most of Israel was. And this man has just got started. This is his business. He's planted a new vineyard. He hasn't had an opportunity to eat a grape off of it. Well, his heart is in that. His interest is there. He's to stay until 
he gets this started until he eats of it. And another man eat of it if he's killed in battle. So let him stay till he gets it established. That's quite interesting, is it not? Then verse 7, you have the third reason. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. Here's a young man engaged to a girl, and he's drafted. Well, he's not to be taken. Why? Because he's in love with that girl, wants to marry her. Let him stay home. Let him marry the girl. That's the important thing. That's where his heart is. And he's not to go to battle. Verse 8. And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that's fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. Now, there might be a man that just very frankly says, I'm a coward. I don't want to go fight. I'm afraid to. I don't want to go fight. And therefore, I want to stay home. I've always said that these are four good reasons for a man not going to war. Now, I don't think the first three reasons would have gotten me, but that last one would have. If you're afraid and faint-hearted, you're fearful, you're not to go. Now, I would have turned and gone home. And you remember how this worked. That was in Gideon's day. This law was applied to Gideon. Gideon started out with quite a few there, you recall. He had several thousand. He ended up with 300. Why? Well, because there were those there that when they came down to the water, they got down on all fours, took a drink. This other crowd, they went through and lapped it up like a dog. They said, let's get to the enemy, get this job done. We want to protect and save our nation. And so they're the ones that went to battle. These others did not. Now, I do not know about you, but I personally have not quite agreed with all this business of burning of draft cards. I've had great sympathy with many of these young men. But I wished instead of trying to blame it on the government and trying to blame it on something else, why don't they just come out and say they're yellow and they don't want to go fight? And I will agree that that's a good reason. That would have kept me out of the battle, I can assure you that. I wouldn't have gone. I couldn't have gone because I'd have to say my knees wouldn't hold me up. I wasn't permitted to play much football when I was in college and in high school for the very simple reason I had to work, to work my way through school. And I'd never been able to prove whether I was a good enough player to be given a scholarship. And I'd actually have had to have more than a scholarship as I supported my mother. So... I had to give it up, but I played a little, and I enjoyed it. But there's one thing about it. Right before that kickoff, when that whistle is blown, honestly, and I played the backfield standing way back, my knees buckled. There were times when I would actually go down on one knee. I was so scared. But the minute I was hit, if I got that ball and I was hit, I want to tell you, from then on, I'm all right. You see, there was this excuse, but I wanted to play. Now, what is back of all of this? God says, I want my people to know two things when they go to war. One is, they're on the right side, that they're fighting for that which is right, and God is with them. The second thing that is very important 
is that they be enthusiastic about it. And I would say today that the draft was a good thing, provided it was put on this basis. I don't think it's a good thing unless it is put on this kind of a basis today. And I think if a fellow's yellow, he ought to say so. He said, i be honest with you, I'm yellow. I have no heart for this thing at all. And I think that would be an excuse, by the way. And it would get rid of this motley mob that we've had today, that this is a war we're fighting for our country, and that the flag and that patriotism are really something. It's worthwhile, but not the way it's been carried on today by politicians, you see. So God was very wise after all. He had a marvelous arrangement here for his people, even in time of war. Now, will you notice verse 11? And it shall be, if it make the answer of peace and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that's found therein shall be tributaries unto thee. They shall serve thee. Now, this all has to do with warfare, you see. And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then thou shalt besiege it. Now, this is another great principle. And you will recall that General Douglas MacArthur did not believe in fighting a war that you don't try to win. That's the curse of our nation is. It's compromise and our phony piosity today. It's shot through our churches. It's in our government that we are a great, big, wonderful brother. Now, don't misunderstand me. I love my country. I love my nation. But I hate to see this type of thing. He said, don't fight a land war in Asia. He said in his day that if you're going to fight a war, you're to fight it to win. That's the purpose of it. And that's exactly what God says. You've got no business to fight a war unless you're fighting it to win. May I say that God put out some very good principles here, friends, and I think that we've departed very far from them.